You're listening to What She Said with Candace Sampson, a podcast for Canadian women about Canadian women. What She Said is here to empower, educate, and entertain you. For the past six months, I've been sharing interviews with amazing female business owners that embody the best of entrepreneurial spirit. Together with RBC, What She Said is taking a deeper dive now in a five-part series that takes a close look at some of the struggles and triumphs women business owners have faced during the pandemic, so that others may learn and grow from the wisdom shared here. Today, we're talking about one of the top five hardest-hit sectors during COVID, the restaurant industry. According to Statistics Canada, Canadians enjoyed dining out prior to the pandemic, spending on average $2,775 annually, or just over one quarter of their total food spending at restaurants in 2019. Eating out had become a way of life. Flash forward to today, and over half of food services and drinking places do not know how long they can continue to operate before considering closure or bankruptcy. Saddled with massive government debt, rising food costs, ongoing supply chain issues, and a labor shortage, few would disagree that the restaurant industry has been one of the hardest hit during the pandemic. Jesse Votary of Ramshackle Industries in Stratford, Ontario, knows this all too well. And yet, not a single one of the employees in her four restaurants was let go despite three government-mandated shutdowns. And a few of her employees were even able to buy homes during this pandemic. Is Jessie on to something? We're finding out today as she shares her people over profit philosophy with us and her unusual relationship with her financial advisor at RBC, Tina Tomasi. Welcome to the show, Jessie and Tina. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Okay, so this is, I mean... When we discussed with RBC, you know, a series of podcasts uh, that, you know, affected different people during this pandemic, the restaurant industry came up at top of the list. I mean, the impact has been huge. So, Jesse, let's talk about the first days of the pandemic and, and what was sort of happening in your space as the realities of shutdowns started to hit. Um, I mean, there's really two parts to that. The the very initial start, I mean, there was a lot of fear. I think that people in general faced a lot of fear. Um, and certainly our team um, kind of mirrored that. They, uh, you know, they had questions about whether it was safe to come to work, you know, about whether we were ever going to come back to work. Uh, you know, it, it had a, a massive psychological impact as well as, of course, financial. I mean, uh, restaurants are not designed to take that kind of a financial decrease. I mean, no businesses. Um, so deciding to shut our doors kind of overnight uh, is it had a, a, a 100% impact on every aspect of our business. So you you run four restaurants, and so you you know um, you employ people in each of those restaurants. Your initial reaction, I'm going to assume, was taking care of your employees. Yeah, I mean, I I feel like I saw it coming. Uh, I mean, obviously, Canada wasn't the first place to shut down. Uh, I actually was in Peru in February um, and uh, kind of the world started to turn a bit sideways. And so when I returned to Canada at the end of February, um, 
two weeks before the first shutdown, uh, I really, I saw, I, I felt like I saw the writing on the wall. Um, so I was not taken as by surprise as I feel some of our staff were. Uh, I feel like, and that tends to be my way. I tend to be very forward thinking. I'm always looking kind of to the horizon um, to find you know, what's coming next and making decisions ahead of, of the decisions making me. Um, so uh, I had, uh, I had set a few things in motion already. Um, right as soon as we shut down within the first few days of shutting down, uh, yes, staff were paramount and making decisions for them. Um, from my perspective, keeping them employed was the biggest piece of the puzzle. Um, they actually, a lot of the staff, as I mentioned, fear was a big part of what we experienced uh, or what they experienced. Um, they actually, a lot of people requested, we kind of took a two week break. Everybody wanted to just go home for two weeks and kind of gather their thoughts. Um, but for me, I was already scheduling meetings with my banker, uh, with Tina, um, with some of our other non-traditional lenders and with landlords. Like I was at the table at day one. Tina, let's, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna come to you for a second because in the beginning, the for the banks, you guys were really sort of in the same position, really. You're managing this blind, trying to navigate customers through this once-in-a-lifetime experience. What was this like for you in the beginning days? Uh, we were just waiting. We were constantly waiting for a direction on what to do next. You know, people like Jesse, the the early birds would start calling and asking questions and we didn't even have answers. We had no idea what the relief program that was implemented through the bank was going to look like, what the relief programs that the government was going to try and put in place. And the biggest question was, how long is this all going to take? How long is it going to take to get these relief plans uh, programs in place to try and salvage the these very important businesses, this very important industry. So that was the biggest thing is just waiting for direction, not only from the bank to say, okay, we're going to do the six month interest relief, no payments. It won't get tacked on to the end. You know, it'll just be nice and clean and simple. Okay, great. Here's the plan the bank rolled out, but we don't have the process in place yet to implement it. So we're going to give you six months of no payments. We just don't know how yet. Right. And then are we going to do it in conjunction with other programs? loans, mortgages, credit cards, like everything just sort of started coming. And it was just an overwhelming amount of information. And then, okay, great. We have a plan. How do we implement the plan? How do we contact everyone? Like, how do we do this quickly for everyone? And sort of that's, that's how it felt at the time, like in March, April, May of last year, that's, it was crazy. I mean, it's worth noting here that, I mean, this was the same reaction for every single person across the planet. Nobody had a crystal ball on this. We were all just reacting and we're still really reacting mm -hmm. um, because that, that two week shutdown turned into 75 almost. weeks. <laughs> <laughs> well, how many months are we at now? It's 75 uh, weeks. I think we're at oh. 75 weeks. Yeah. That's, it's crazy to think that this is our reality and I don't see us coming out of it anytime soon. So let's talk about where we're at now because I read a statistic that said, this is from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. It says the average small business owner has accrued $170,000 in debt. At uh, least. Over the pandemic? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's yeah. really just one, two programs, SEBA, and yeah. Hascap. Like at least. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
and so th- that's where I think that that the interesting conversations are going to start to happen because now businesses are being forced into making some really hard decisions. Do you stay, do you keep the business going to work for nothing, to work for debt? (laughs) Uh, Do you declare bankruptcy? Not a good option. Um, You know, how do you make a profit in this unpredictable uh, market? So Jesse, you are the forward thinking person that we've come to, to sort of discuss these things. So where do you see this going? Um, I mean, I think, and some business owners will dislike me for saying this, but I think you have to kind of throw profitability out um, for at least the foreseeable future. Um, You know, you want to do projections into the long-term future and obviously hope that there's profit to be had again. But I think sustainability is the word. Like, can we sustain our staff, can they still sustain their mortgage or their rent payment? You know, um, for me, the business is, I mean, it's an entity. It is a thing that, you know, lives and dies, in my opinion, by its people. So if we are looking at how much can the business make, how much can the, you know, the investors make at this stage, I don't think that that is something that's really on my radar. Um, My radar is very specifically tooled towards um, making sure that every two weeks, my staff have a paycheck in the bank um, and making sure that our suppliers are paid, uh, making sure that uh, the lights are on and uh, that the mortgage and or rent, uh, we have situations on both sides of that. So kind of an, an eye to that. Uh, those are the things I think that businesses should focus on. Sometimes I think, uh, as Tina mentioned at the beginning of the pandemic, everything was so overwhelming. And I think that as we continue on and as the unknown continues to stretch in front of us, the, the possibility or the, the reality of being overwhelmed by how do we make a profit when you're scratching and clawing, just try to get there can be a really negative place to put your focus, um, I think if you put your focus on the people around you and on, again, those producers, the people that depend on you on a day-to-day basis in your supply chain and and the staff that work for you, I think that that can be a much more positive way of expending your energy uh, because there's immediate outcome, A, um, when, when you have your staff cash their paycheck that every two weeks you have a win, Uh, you know, whereas trying to project what kind of profits you're going to see a year from now or two years from now uh, can be a challenge. And it can feel like if you falter a little bit or you're not getting that kind of return, uh, you can feel defeated. Um, You bring up a a really interesting point here because pre-pandemic, it was all profit, uh, answering to investors, answering to the market. You know, uh, there is that that old uh, you know story that if, if if a business was a person, they would be a sociopath uh, because they, <laughs> you know, it's all about uh, profit and money, and you know, little little about uh, the people that it's impacting. And so, are we? I mean, I'm philosophizing a bit here, but. Do you think that we are shifting our mindsets in that regard because it's not the status quo anymore? We're not living in that world uh, anymore where a business can deliver these crazy profits like they used to. I mean, right now, like you said, it's about keeping your head above water. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's for, for us, this is not new. So I'm very, I'm very hopeful that we are seeing 
a shift and that we're almost forcing that whatever this thing is that's happening, whether it's mother nature or some sort of, you know, oops in a lab or who knows what it is, whatever this world event is, I'm hoping, I, I mean, my hope dwindles when I see humanity behave in its way, but um, I'm hopeful that business can kind of turn a new leaf, as it were, and consider people before profits. Uh, I mean, I'm very much, I mean, people call me a nasty socialist, but I think that, uh, I think that socialism is, you know, in its proper function is great. I think that caring about people and having some sort of moderate median income makes a lot of sense. When businesses are, are lining the pockets of investors because they're doing very well, um, you know, there's different restaurant groups um, that are, you know, semi low, they're not quite full corporate, like, you know, the big corporations, but smaller corporations, and you you go to their page about the partners, and there's four of them, and they're all men, and they're all in their late 50s. And, you know, they're, they're very wealthy. And then you look at their teams, and you look at the single moms that serve tables, you look at the people who can't afford houses, because they work for a company that pays them minimum wage, and lays them off every time there's a lockdown you start to see that the fabric of our world needs some more attention. So, I mean, I'm very hopeful that businesses start to say this is more important. And I think, especially right now, the industry, our industry, the restaurant industry is facing a, a staffing shortage, a massive, massive staffing shortage. Um, and like our companies right now are not facing that same shortage. We kept our people through every lockdown um, we committed to all of our full-time staff. So we still have a full complement in all of our kitchens. We still have a full complement in all of our front of house team, but that's because we invested in them. And you don't see that in our industry. And as, as more and more people leave our industry, you're going to see this shift become forced where businesses have to consider the people because they've paid so little attention to the people that now they don't have them at all. You, you, you are an outlier in the industry. Yes. Right yes. now, you are you are definitely an outlier. You are putting your people first. You you've kept them. They want to be there. I mean, what a novel concept <laughs> is having people want to work for you. So you're obviously offering something outside of of the norm. Uh, so I mean, I love that you're you're saying this that other people will probably be forced because we're seeing this. We're seeing you know restaurants signs being put up. Sorry, we all quit. We all left. Right. You know, so there there does have to be a shift to that people over profit during this. Um, but I'm curious when I when I throw out those numbers of you know what was it? What did I say? One hundred and seventy thousand dollars in debt. <laughs> you know, um, how how are you going to move forward through that without being discouraged? And not just you. I'm talking about others. So how do how does the restaurant industry survive? with these new protocols in place? Mm -mm. Um, you know, without being a total doomsday uh, type, I think that um, I'm not no, sure that, that we're it. going to. No. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that the restaurant industry as a whole and certainly as it in its current iteration is going to survive. I think that big changes are going to come to our industry. Um, I think that um, the cost of, of doing business, the supply chain costs and all of that are going to be, uh, are going to drastically affect what was and what becomes of the restaurant industry. 
Um, in the interim, I think, um, you know, and particularly for me being a very forward kind of, I like to plan a long way out. Um, I think that making that plan and especially in relationship to your lenders, you know, knowing what that debt means and, and having a relationship with the person who at least is the front, the front person for your debt, Tina, in this case, uh, for me, um, is really important. I think that, uh, as we, I said kind of earlier about the potential for despair or for that weight or that feeling overwhelmed by all these things, um, kind of putting your, your focus on the right things and having conversation about it on a regular basis is really important. I think a lot of people, especially when things, I mean, this has never happened before, but when, when times are tough, the, the danger of feeling shame about debt, you know, the, the great American dream, the great Canadian dream, everyone, you know, thinks that they're going to be a millionaire someday. And that if you're in debt, you're just not working hard enough. And all these kinds of things that have been kind of spoon fed to us by a patriarchal society are, are they're just not true. Like working through things and how you work through them is sometimes as important as like where you end up. Um, so for me, making sure that I'm having those regular conversations and have an understanding of what digging out of that debt looks like. Ready to take control of your future? Realize your business idea with RBC through digital first solutions, advice and services that go beyond banking. They can help you start and grow your business. You can get started with opening your business account online. RBC ideas happen here. Learn more at rbc.com slash beyond banking. I think now would be a good time to flip this over to Tina because digging out of that debt, I think people have this relationship with their banks that is one of almost fear. You know, what is the bank going to do uh, in this situation? So Tina, how are you, uh, working with people right now to sort of calm those fears and worries uh, in business owners? Because, I mean, I imagine that people are genuinely frightened that they're going to lose their livelihoods through all of this. I mean, I have a couple of concerns. And as Jesse addressed, the first one is when people just choose to put their head in the sand and dig in their heels and just what am I going to do? Like nothing I can do. Look what the government made me do. Like, and then, so that's the first group of people that really concerns me is that the ones that have, I haven't heard from or that I've reached out to and, Oh no, everything's fine. Everything's fine until your mortgage payments start bouncing. And then I call and everything's not fine and it hasn't been fine. So that's one conversation, right? That's okay. Well, I called you like 14 months ago and then 12 months ago, and then 10 months ago, and eight months ago, and everything was fine, right? I mean, I can only ask you so many questions for you to open up to me. And if you choose not to do that, not much I can do. And then you've got the others like Jesse, who literally, I don't know if it was March or April, she called and she's like, well, here's what I'm thinking of doing with this restaurant, I think I'm going to sell it and combine it with this one and combine the kitchens and just operate. And I'm like, God, it's like four weeks into this, like, <laughs> right? Just like she said, the intuitive, the forward thinking to say, okay, this is the situation I've been handed. I can dig in my heels or stick my head in the sand and just wait for whatever to happen to happen. Or I can start being proactive about what I'm going to do moving forward. And 
what concerns me greatly that keeps me up at night is thinking about how people like Jesse, restaurant owners, hospitality are going to pay this debt back when we are nowhere close <laughs> to being business as usual. So that's great. I'm glad the government created all these wonderful programs to allow, you know, Jesse's restaurants to remain open and keep their staff. But now what? It's not time to repay this debt. It, in, that's my opinion. It's not time. I mean, there's certain people who probably uh, use some of these subsidies and programs that maybe didn't need to use them. Well, I think that's going to be an ongoing concern. That's going to be a problem because mm -hmm. there was a rush to take advantage of all of these programs. Right. And, and, you know, I don't want to lay blame anywhere because... I think I, I do genuinely believe that people are good at heart. And I do believe that the government wanted to make sure nobody was homeless. Nobody, you know, got hurt in this, that, you know, everybody was safe. I do believe that, that this was the initial, but there's always somebody who's going to take advantage. Right. And that's what we saw with these, with these grants and these loans. Yeah. And unfortunately that taints the whole right. pool. It was really just the Canada Emergency Business Account that was like a free-for-all. The other programs, you really had to do a lot of background work and submit a lot of paperwork to the CRA to qualify for those programs. Like the HASCAP loan, which started at 100000 went up to a couple million. And there was a lot of work, background work, that you needed to complete in order to see if you qualified and then to be approved. With the SEBA, literally, you went online you put in your payroll number, you're just and you were done. There was nothing nobody was background checking, right. So essentially, there was this free for all that you didn't have to prove anything, you didn't have to prove a decrease in your revenue, nothing, it was just you got it. Right? And that SIBA is due in December of 2022. Has there been any sort of extension? To yeah, that? they've extended it many, many times. So it was it was in the beginning, it was in the spring, and then it was in the summer, and then it was in the fall. Now it's not till next year. So they just continue to extend it, which is the right idea. But still, when it's time to repay, what part of normal will be at, will we be at? Where will we be on that spectrum of normal? And someday right? it's going to have to be due. There just be, will be no more kicking it down the road. It's someday yeah. it is actually all going to come due. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, the, you know, this is a much bigger problem that needed to be addressed years ago when the conservative government wanted to you know, take funding from education, from hospitals, right? And this is what ended up happening. This is how we got to this situation. So this is a much bigger problem, which we're not going to solve today. But at the end of the day, that's what it's going to come down to. We didn't want to overwhelm hospitals. So we shut everything down. And look what happened. So was that the right call? And I think that, you know, this election coming up in less than a month is going to be, you know, a turning point, whether we continue with a liberal government, which is I feel like it's, you know, whatever that saying is the devil, you know, is the better than the one you don't, because I'm afraid now of if a, you know, different party takes control, what's going to happen? Oh, my God, what's going to happen then? Well, so, I think you've you've actually hit on a very good point, that there's a, a whole new level of unpredictability thrown into this with uh, the potential to have our government change over in the middle of a fourth wave and and all of these programs out there. Now, whether the government decides to call them or extend them or offer more, 
we don't know what's going to happen, right? So that is for for business owners in hospitality, uh, amongst other things, that's got to be a huge concern. Jesse, does that worry you? Ladies, I've chosen to tune out for the last three or four minutes because I'm not willing to <laughs> even consider that. And, uh, I've just, I heard something about government elections, payments due, and I just kind of daydreamed for a moment about some sort of new deep fryer. Uh, no, thank you. Um, I'm, I choose, uh, I, I obviously recognize the things that are coming my way, um, but I also am very selective about the things that I'm going to give time and attention to. So yes. Uh, am I, you know, do I have some sort of loose uh, concerns over in some sort of place that I try not to keep too close to my heart uh, about all of those things? Absolutely. I think that um, I'm going to hold out some hope that though I don't think our government has done a great job, uh, certainly not provincially, um, I think that at the end of the day, the, the folks in the government that calculate losses financially, um, especially losses relating to money they've loaned out through banks and banks will obviously take it very firmly from the government because that position of power is relatively equal. I think that there are finance, financial folk um, who are going to look at this situation and they're going to recognize that if they call the loan, they're going to have massive bankruptcies. And I am at least semi-confident that someone up there, some person who's got their little calculating machine that's doing <laughs> their, you know, their adding machine off to the side and like the tape is rolling and they've got their fancy visor on, that person is going to be like, okay, so I've done this fantastic math equation. And if we call it by X date, we're going to see a 75% bankruptcy. And if we call it by X date plus six months, we're going to only see a 40% bankruptcy. And if we call it at you know, X date plus six months plus a year, we're actually going to see a 92% repayment rate as long as the trajectory of business has gone up. I think that there's someone somewhere doing that. I think that right now they're doing it more alimentary than they should be. Um, I think they should be like looking farther to the future and being like, we're actually not going to put a payment date on this yet because we're still in the process of evaluating. But I think they like to give you a target and then they like to move it because it keeps you <laughs> under kind of their thumb. Um, uh, and I'm, uh, I'm just not, uh, I'm not going to let it eat me. You know, I'm going to, you know, it's there and it exists. And it's something obviously I'm very aware of. And again, I continue to have conversations with, uh, with Tina and uh, with other lenders. And I say, these are the realities. This is what we can pay now. If this gets called, we won't be able to make that payment. And so I have very realistic goals for myself. And I mentioned earlier about carrying that shame of, of, an inability to repay or an, a shame relating to debt. And I just don't, I don't much care for that. I, I think that people, especially women, uh, I think carry that. I think we feel this like strange obligation. Um, one of the kind of small, strange gifts that COVID has given, um, and it has given small, strange gifts, um, is that kind of release from that. You know, this situation is decidedly out of my control. And I like control. <laughs> you know, I like to, to be the one that is making the decisions and driving things in the direction that I want them. Um, but COVID has taken that from me. 
Um, and for those of us that like to wrestle control back into our own hands, it's kind of a good thing. And it's something that I would encourage business owners, male, female, and otherwise to embrace. Like, this is not me. I can't do anything about this. The only thing I can do is to be conscious of it, to continually have conversations with my bank, make sure that I'm, you know, prepared for what's coming my way and adjust as things get adjusted. It's, well, it's funny that, oh, sorry, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, it's okay. It's, go ahead, Tina. Jesse, it's funny that you use that word prepared because I was, as you're talking before you got to that word, I'm like, it's about preparedness. When I went to meet Jesse, we were outside and she had her laptop open and she had all her financials and she's like, so I've been doing projections for the next 18 months. It doesn't look that good. Like, it's not nice. <laughs> and she's like, even when I try to make it look good, it still doesn't look that good. That's the kind of person you need, right? Is that that realism to say, I want it to be great and I want to pay you and I want to pay me and I want to pay everybody. But the reality is, is if we keep trucking down this path, it's probably not going to happen. So what can we put in place now? What can kind of conversations do we need to have? Who do we need to engage other than me and you and the other lenders to make the right decisions? I mean, this, this, this whole issue of control and maintaining control is interesting to me because I want to shift gears a little bit away from the finances and move into the supply chain. I mean, mm -hmm. today I just read an article that McDonald's can't serve milkshakes in in uh, UK. They've run out of milkshakes, and uh, you know, Starbucks here at home they're they've run out of caramel drizzle. Apparently, like these are ridiculous things to think about that we are having a hard the supply chain is affecting, but it I mean. Tina, I'm sure you're seeing it in all businesses. Jesse, how are you managing these disruptions in, in supply chain? Um, by the seat of our pants. Uh, we have milkshakes. So if you can't get them in the UK at McDonald's, um, we're still hand spinning them. So uh, come come get them from us. <laughs> no, um, I mean, again... I, <laughs> I don't want, I don't want to come off as like, I don't care. I care a lot. I like, I mean, I care so much. I, I care a lot about our people. First, of course, I care about our guests. I care about our guest experiences. Um, but there's only a certain kind of distance I can go about stressing myself out about these kinds of things. So like today, you know, a perfect example, I come in in the mornings on Tuesdays, do some office work and I receive deliveries for the chefs. Um, and so our meat supplier came to deliver. Uh, and he was like, yeah, so you're not getting your sirloin. I'm like, good. Thank you. Um, when it's like, hopefully Thursday, hopefully is good. Are we like a 75% hopeful? Are we like a 35% hopeful? And he's like, yeah, 60. Like, good, good. So we might not have steak this weekend. Um, <laughs> You know, for me, if we don't have steak this weekend, I'm going to have my server say, good evening. Thank you for joining us. We have sold out of the sirloin this evening. You know, for us, it's going to be like that. Our chefs are amazing. So what they're going to do is they're going to reach out to a local producer and they're going to get beef cheeks instead of sirloin. You know, like our team is going to adjust. We're relatively small, so we're able to do that. The reality is, is that the larger the machine or the larger the boat is a boat. Boats are good, a good analogy, because if you imagine how long it takes to turn a tanker, which everyone experienced when that big giant tanker got lodged in the canal, um, 
um, a boat of that size to maneuver even a few degrees takes a huge amount of time and effort. Um, we're, our restaurants are quite small. They're more like speedboats. So like if we have to, we can, we can adjust relatively quickly. We're quick on our toes, but it's constant. Like I went to my favorite smoothie place in town the other day and she was like, yeah, I was supposed to get four cases of pineapple. I was supposed to get five cases of banana. I was supposed to get, you know, eight cases of frozen mango. And she said, they said, oh, we, we can't get it to you Thursday. We'll have it Monday. And Monday they arrived with one case of banana. It, and, it feels like we're living in a world of you get what you get and you don't get yeah, upset. But like none of the rest of that. So if 16 cases, they're like, no problem. We'll have it Monday. And then they brought one of 16 you know, like you're at a position where you're just like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to redesign my smoothie menu then. Like this is the challenge. But if you can't kind of commit to just pivoting and pivoting, the other reality is, is it's just driving the price up, Right. you know? So there's two sides. There's I can't get it. So you can't get it. So you don't have a milkshake or you don't have a steak. And then there's the other side where it's just, things are just more expensive. So we have a fried chicken shack and the price of the chicken that we buy has gone from like i think it's like th- gone from like 3.79 a pound to like $6 a pound you know in the last 12 months and i'm sure that if i doubled my prices people would have a problem with that <laughs> you know so ultimately this does come down to you know what you're in business for and that's the consumer so how has that been for you? Have, have you? have people been generally understanding? Have they been complaining? How is that working? Um, very much both sides. Very much both sides. And I think that COVID has created a massive divide. Um, it has taken the haves and the haves nots, and it has driven that a lot farther uh, apart. Um, there are people that have you know, their sales have increased and they've been busier and made more money during COVID. There are people that have been unemployed for 18 months. There are people that have been, you know, borderline destitute. So I think that it's a, it is a very logistical division. So you have people who see the menu increasing and they're like, no big deal. My pocketbook can handle it. In fact, I've been going out less often, so it doesn't really bother me to see the prices raise a little bit here and there. But when you go to the flip side where people, they can't afford the increases, you're going to, you lose your consumers. So you start to draw that line divide between, you know, like our fried chicken, a fried chicken is a great um, kind of telling, a a good measuring stick um, because it's comparable loosely to things like KFC and Popeye's. Right. So we have it's these not big- it is head and shoulders above <laughs> KFC and Popeye's. Don't Thank even you. compare yourself to KFC and Popeye's. It's better than chicken I've had in like Nashville. And like it's. Thank you. It's amazing. But if chicken has gone, the price of chicken has gone up for Jesse. There's no way it hasn't gone up for KFC and Popeye's. Right. But they have a well, they're bigger machine. So can they somehow afford to weather this storm better? Yeah, their chickens are also very questionable product. Um, our chickens are Ontario chickens, like so they can buy chickens from the worlds. You know, they can buy global chickens and at less price than 
than we can ever dream to buy chickens. Um, but the reality is, is that some of our clientele know the difference. Thank you, Tina. Um, but some folks consider it similar. So they would consider if they're going out to buy fried chicken, they have to consider if I'm going to spend $50 on fried chicken tonight for my family of four, if I go to Pollo, I'm going to get you know, one and a half pieces per person. Whereas if I go to KFC, I'm going to get six pieces per person. You know, they don't necessarily consider that ours is boneless and theirs is bone in and like all these different things. So the reality is, is that front facing customer price point makes a big difference, especially at what would be considered a lower price point style of food. So there's kind of this divide, especially in restaurants where you're going to see like the quick service restaurants that are competing with fast food are almost going to have a harder time increasing their prices and maintaining margin. You're going to see that more like upscale can push their numbers a little bit higher. You know, if you pay $33 for a steak or you pay $36 for a steak, are you really feeling that? Right. You know? Um, so I think that's going to be where you see a massive divide. Ready to take control of your future? Realize your business idea with RBC through digital-first solutions, advice, and services that go beyond banking. They can help you start and grow your business. Get started with RBC. RBC. Ideas happen here. Learn more at rbc.com slash beyondbanking. I want to shift this conversation finally, because I think this is an interesting dynamic uh, between you and Tina. And so this was, I want to be clear, this was totally unintentional that this was going to work out this way, this podcast. Jesse, you were referred to me by Teresa Albert, who owns a and b in um, Stratford. Which what is a how sweet you, woman. She's, she's amazing. Uh, so let's give a little plug to her because she's incredible. Mm-hmm. She gave me your name. And so, which is how I found you. Um, I did not know that your banking relationship was with RBC, even though they are the title sponsor of this podcast. When we got talking to the two of you, you guys have a really great relationship um, in the way you speak with each other. And I want to, I don't want this to be just about you, 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 because this is really for other people to gain the benefit of this. So Mm -hmm. maybe you could share for people listening in businesses, sort of how to have that really meaningful relationship with your banker, which sounds crazy, but it's important right now, especially now. Yeah. Well, and it shouldn't, it shouldn't sound crazy. Um, I mean, it, it does. I understand that. And I talk to people in business and they're like, Oh, I don't, you know, I can barely talk to my banker. I don't, you know, so, um, Tina was not always my banker. I had a different banker, um, not that long ago, pre COVID, but, but not like forever ago. Um, and I was dissatisfied with my banker. You have to remember that your, your bank is providing you a service. So in the same way that my guests want to like me when they come to my restaurant, like I want to like my banker if they're providing me a service, they should be providing me with customer service that I want. And so uh, what I did was I asked for what I wanted. Um, And I think that people sometimes are afraid of that with their banks. Banks are big and scary and like, and yeah, like RBC as a giant, you know, conglomerate is probably a little bit daunting, Um, but Tina's great. And so when I was dissatisfied with my, my banker, I said, I want that banker. 
And I, <laughs> I said, I would like to bank with Tina. And I, and at the time, I don't even think she was technically in my area. <laughs> we're, I'm still we're, not in your area. You're right. just very, very special. Thank you. Um, so banks, most of them are, are pretty big. And I mean, RBC is the one I know the best, but they, they have great people. Um, some people jive with you. Some people don't jive with you. And I think it's important for, as a business owner, to, to ask for what you want, to say, I would like to work with this person because I feel like they they make me feel validated about like where I'm going and what I'm doing with my business. They listen to me. They make me feel heard. You know, those are those first two things, especially right now, are really important. Um, being able to kind of spitball with Tina, being able to sit down and say, here's my numbers. They look like absolute horse doo-doo trying to stay away from the language, um, you know, and being able to be honest with her and be, and feel comfortable being honest with her makes my business better. I feel like I'm going to cry. Um, I, I, to Jesse's point, I think you have to like, I, I believe in her. I believe in her restaurants. I know that what she does is far superior to many other restaurants I've been to all over the world. Um, and I think we have a real special connection as well is because I would like to be Jesse in my next life, right? I want to <laughs> be a restaurateur and, and it's something that's a passion of mine. So it made tremendous sense for us to work together because A, I'm here to support her in any capacity she needs. And if I can't do that, then I'm in the wrong job, first of all. I'm here for her. And if she's not succeeding, I'm not succeeding. So that's the only way that I can explain it. And you have to have a passion for people, which she has for her people. And in turn, I have for my people. And and that's just the, the relationship that we have is... I can see what she's trying to do and I'm going to do everything in my power to help her get from A to B to C and to make it through this. All right. Well, we're going to close out this podcast. We have a lot of information here, but before we do, I'm going to put you both on the spot a little bit. Jesse, I would like it if you could give maybe three pieces of advice uh, to restaurant owners for the next, let's say the next six months to survive the next six, what do you think they're going to have to do? So, and, and I'm talking small restaurant owners, by the way, uh, yeah. who we're not worried about the McDonald's of the world. We can know. Yeah. Um, I, I think that, uh, the, the biggest thing is, and, and probably the, the most irritating word, uh, of the pandemic is, uh, pivot. Um, I think that if you are a small restaurant and you are looking at your business model and you are doing the same thing you were doing 18 months ago, if you're still tackling restauranting the same way you were restauranting pre-COVID, you need an overhaul and you need to reinvigorate your business and you need to reinvent yourself and it's time for a facelift, not necessarily a physical one because no one can afford a renovation, but Whatever you have in your team and your people that can be new and exciting and can be delivered in a way that is new and exciting is something you have to consider. If you're not innovating right now, if you're not pivoting and changing and doing something interesting, you are probably not going to make it. You're not going to attract the staff and as the pool shrinks, you're not your suppliers. Again, you're not going to be ready to innovate with new things that come your way. 
that is going to be the number one thing is like, be light on your feet and be willing to make changes. Um, from that, I mean, that's, that's a huge one. I see restaurants around me. Some of them are doing that and they're doing relatively well. Some of them are like, but I'm, I just reopened and I'm doing the thing I used to do. And I'm like, it's not the same world. You're not living in the same world. Um, the other thing is, is like batten down the hatches. Don't overspend, you know, be smart about the little things. It's summertime. It's 33 degrees out there. If your restaurant is closed on a Monday, make sure your AC is not set at 70. You know, it seems so small, but like utilities are expensive. Turn that shit off. Sorry, I don't know if that's acceptable. You can, um, abso you can absolutely swear. Thank you. This is a swear. Uh, no, Perfect. Not, yeah, I don't even know what the word is, but go ahead. Swear. But like, you. do you have a toilet that's running? Like, are like, it seems like such small things, but like, especially right now, it's like, you know, make sure that you are are spending money wisely. You know, don't have a huge inventory like you used to. You used to have a ton of wine. That's great. You know what? Instead, have a super small wine list that has a really like low markup and move through that wine and don't carry that big amount of cash sitting on your shelf. You know, like I think that, that those small financial adjustments end up obviously being significant in your future. And along with that, track your waste. Right now, if your menu is too big, same with your wine list, same with all of that, and you're throwing food out at the end of every week, your chef might not be tracking that. You should be asking them, I mean, in regular times also, but especially right now, you know, the diner, the diners are less, there are less of them overall. So if your menu has 27 items, maybe it should only have 22 items and five of those items are going into the garbage regularly and costing you a lot of money. Yeah. And then, um, I mean, there's not just the money. It's also just the environmental impact of all that waste uh, is, is huge. So that's worth it. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a whole other podcast. Yeah, um, Absolutely. But yeah, but again, like from a financial perspective right now for restaurants, that is something people aren't, they're not looking at. Well, we always had a big menu. It all moved really well. It's like, great. Well, the world is not the same. It's not happening the same way. Um, and uh, I mean, I guess that's two. The third thing is, is like, just don't, don't beat yourself up, you know, and, and don't be afraid to, to be proactive when it comes to financial discussions. Like th that's probably the third biggest one is like, if you're not going to be able to make payments three months from now, you need to talk to your banker yesterday. Like you should already know that and you should have a plan in place. Your banker is going to be a lot nicer to you and the bank is going to be a lot nicer to you when you have come to them and said, I need to pause this payment or I need to do interest only payments. I know this is not normal, but, and, and don't be afraid to advocate for yourself and say, listen, you can either get a lot of payments at this half rate, or you can get three more at the full rate and I'm never going to pay you again, <laughs> you know? And just be hard honest. decisions, hard decisions. Yeah, be honest and straightforward. Yeah. Tina, so what those would are you, three things. Tina, what would you say? Um, I would say to be uh, open, honest, willing, and proactive. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. All right, ladies, thank you so much for joining me today. I want people to be able to uh, reach out to you after. Uh, the podcast if they have questions, Jesse, particularly with your business, because you are your worker owned, yes. which is unique. 
in in, mm. in the restaurant industry. So um, I want people to be able to reach out to you um, if they have questions about how you are managing through this, because although you may not be turning an incredible profit, you've kept your employees, you've been able to stay afloat. So you are a, a, a good model. Thank you. Three of our front of house staff have bought houses in this current housing market during a pandemic. I want to come as, work for you. Forget the as, radio show. Right? As servers, <laughs> like as as front of house that otherwise would have nothing. Like they had consistent paychecks. They were able to approach a bank with a salary. Like, you know, that's a big part of what we do. It's a big part of what's important to us. All right. So where can people get in touch with you then, Jesse? Uh, email, please. Uh, email's best. Uh, it's jesse with an IE at ramshackleindustries.com. All right. And Tina, if people want to connect with you, I realize you're in a specific area. So perhaps you can tell us the area and then the best way to get in touch with you. If, don't worry about the area. If it's not me, I'll make sure that they get in touch with whoever is local to them. Uh, same email. You can just email me at tina.tomasi at rbc.com. All right. Incredible. We're going to put these emails in the liner notes of the podcast as well so that people uh, can get them there. And thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Yes, thanks fun. for having us. It was great. <laughs> Go eat chicken at Jesse's place. You, It's life-changing. It's life-altering. Not even lying. Excellent. Thank you. Excellent. We will do that. <laughs>